0: Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your semi-weekly podcast where three lifelong friends, rock musicians, and rock fans take an in-depth look at a different rock album each time. This is your host, David Lucarelli.
1: This is John Carson. This is Mike
0: Gavley. And today we're going to be taking a look at Guns N' Roses' Use Your Illusion 1. So following up the top-selling debut album of all time, Appetite for Destruction, they put out the GNR Lies EP in 89, and then comes a double release uh, in 91 at midnight of Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, the long-awaited full-length double album follow-up to appetite for destruction and the album is produced once again by mike clink it's recorded all over los angeles uh a m record plant studio 56 image recording conway metalworks in ontario um long birth to this record they started recording in january uh 13th 1990 they wrapped up in august 3rd 1991 um you know this this album uh is an interesting interesting mix of songs and uh i guess we will just dive right in uh song number one right next door to hell.
1: Okay, uh, the notes I put down is it, it sort of has that like opening, like um, slow build opening, like Welcome to the Jungle a little bit. It's almost like they sort of decided that's how this album has to start. Uh, I like the flange and chorus on the bass. That It's funny, in 1989, 90 is when I started putting effects on my bass, you know what I mean? So it's sort of that these are other bass players using it. The um, the 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 chorus in it is nice and punky and like a gang chorus. You know what I mean? But the lyrics are like rushed. Like I know it's about his neighbor or something like that or some sort of goofy thing like that. I was hoping it would, you know, um, mean a little bit more than that. I, it's it's a strong song. Again, this whole album, to put it bluntly, I'm not really like. I'm not impressed by the whole thing. There's a lot of filler on this album. There's moments of genius, but it, it's a lot of filler. And this is one of the stronger songs on the album. And that might even be just because of the cool ass chorus. You know what I mean? So, all right, Mike, what do you say?
2: Uh, I, I personally, I dig it. Um, you know, but first I'll say that uh, overall, um, you know, getting, you know, two albums from you know, your favorite bands, a lot to digest. You know, I think, Historically, you know, bands have had problems with that, particularly uh, and Mac when they released uh, Tusk, and it's a double album. And I think they had the misfortune too of you know, broadcasting that record on uh, radio. And I guess a lot of people you know went and taped it on cassette, and then that affected sales, you know. But it's uh, again, these double albums, much like uh, Exile on Main Street from the Stones, I and mean, they're sprawling, they're adventurous, and it's a lot to digest. You know, it's, it's not the kind of thing you put on kind of rock out to like it, it, it requires a lot of the listener in a way and and again like you said John there, there's some filler on the record too um but at the same time I think some of the things that are missing from this record that, that we had on Appetite were the great uh, guitar interplay between Axel I mean between you know, Slash and Izzy
0: Oh completely it's completely yeah. gone um, yeah. you know Izzy gets a lot of songwriting credit on this record mm-hmm. uh for some of the stronger songs I think a lot of the time Uh, But it's a little unclear how much guitar he actually played on this record, Uh, because he did quit the band, you know, towards the end of making it. And Mm -hmm. uh, they were still mixing the album. So, you know, how much of this is Slash and how much is is Izzy? My guess is that most of it is probably Slash because, yeah, you're right, that guitar interplay is totally gone. And the other... Mm -hmm. Big lineup changes are they have a full time keyboardist now, Dizzy Reed, Mm -hmm. and they have fired Steven Adler. So he only shows up on, I believe, Civil War, Unusual Illusion 2. But everything else is is cult drummer Matt Sorum. And I think that's a big reason why Izzy left the band, uh, because, you know, Mm -hmm. that quote from him where he says, you know, Steven Adler was the push and the pull that allowed us to do that cool guitar interplay stuff. And when he's gone, then, you know, Matt Sorum is like a metronome. He doesn't have that mm-hmm. same feel. And on top of that, the way that they recorded him, Axel dictated that they couldn't do any overdubs on the drums. So every drum track had to be recorded from start to end in one take. And maybe there's some reasons to do that for, I don't know, artistic purity or, or whatever, or you feel like your drummer's overplaying. And so, you know, that's one way to get him, force him to play more minimalistically. But yeah. I also think it, it, it negatively affected the album because it, it forced him to not only play the way that he plays in perfect meter, but also simplify his parts. And, and I don't know that, that that did the album any favors.
2: Yeah, I agree. also too, you know, the drummers in, in in bands are usually tended to be referred to as like the heartbeat of the band. It pushes in a pulse. You know, it beats faster, it beats a little slower. And, you know, uh, Matt's a fantastic drummer, but at the same time, it's much like Eric Singer, where it, they had this, this meter that is so locked in, which is a great thing, but at the same time, you know, it doesn't live and breathe like a guy like Charlie Watts or, you know, in his case in the Stephen Adams. So you know, all that aside, I, I I like this as opening track. Um I, you know, I I thought it was interesting, too, because I guess it was written, you know, again, about the incident that Axel had with one of his uh, neighbors um, at a condo, which I did the research, which I think was Park La Brea Apartments on uh, 6300 uh, West uh, 3rd Street. In oh, Angeles. was it? Okay, yeah. Yeah, I know
0: exactly where that is. Yeah. Um. <laughs> which
2: also was apparently um, MTV ran a contest.
0: Uh, Evict Axel, was, right? yes.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was the same condo that they used for that uh, contest. But anyway, you know. It's a powerful track. It's a great opening track. It kind of reminds me of like a fast version of uh Back in the Saddle, you know, from Eric's Rocks. And that, you know, F you, bitch, you know, that he does right before the solo axle, that's, that is, that's badass, man. I mean, that is carrying out a note. <laughs> it's just, I'm sure there's some sound effects on the end of the, the word bitch, but that, that's a great technical feat right there alone. And it goes into the bitch and, you know, slash solo. It, to me, it's, it's it, it could be an opening tune for the, for the show. It, to me, it's great. I'm, I'm buying the album so far with this track. I dig
1: it. Okay. Yeah, at this point, I am not disappointed.
0: <laughs> okay, I'm going to be yes. the contrarian on this one. Okay. <laughs> I don't think this is a particularly strong track. I think the main riff is an inferior variation of the riff in Mr. Brownstone. Um and I I think that the way that they were writing songs right at this point was basically the band was coming up with an accompaniment and Axel was then cludging lyrics on top of it and mm-hmm. you know I don't think they were writing in the same room I don't think they were playing mm-hmm. off each other and I think that that kind of shows up in this song. Um, right. the
1: lyrics are rushed. He's like screaming them over top to sort of fit him in, it seems. Yeah. Like. It, it, you know,
0: I mean, lyrically, there's some interesting stuff going on that's somewhere across between kind of rock and roll stream of consciousness and, uh, you know, therapy session. But unless you have the lyric sheet right in front of you, yeah. um, the song doesn't sell the lyrics or the meaning behind the lyrics to you as he's just, you know, screaming them out towards you. Um, and. You know i get i get the idea of living next to a pain in the ass neighbor i mean i've been living in hollywood for a long time and i can absolutely yeah. relate yeah. to that uh yeah. but yeah. uh <laughs> yeah. but at the same time you know i i don't think this is that strong a track here's my pro- uh proposition to you guys every one of these tracks ultimately we have to say every Guns N' Roses fan looks at Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, and they go, you know, if you took the strongest tracks off of both of these albums, you would have a really good album, if not a great album. And so, end of the day, I would not put this track on that album.
3: Okay. All right. Okay.
2: I'll still stand by it, because I dig it. It's it's got a great energy to it. Um, And again, you know, song doesn't be that deep for me to to enjoy, but if it rocks, it rocks, and this one does, in my opinion. Um, But, but, you know... I. Mm -hmm. Also, too, you know, the, the, the the lyric uh, subject matter is it, it almost so immediate. Like, you know, we heard about the incident with and his neighbor, and then all of a sudden, it became a song of the record. Like, it, it was almost too soon in a way. You know, it was almost like front page news. And all of a sudden, we didn't have to read this story. You know, so didn't we ever hear this story?
3: It, it right. Special, it's a little.
2: You
0: know? This whole album is 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 weird because it, in some ways it feels completely uh, overproduced and overwrought, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it also feels kind of. Undercooked, in some ways,
3: it's um, rushed.
1: The entire album is rushed. They're they're creating filler, and they don't know what to do. And they're they have no, they have nobody behind them saying that's not a good idea, or rushing them in the studio because they had the world's biggest debut.
0: Right. You, know, you don't want to be the A and R guy that right. starts telling Guns and Roses who just had the biggest selling debut of all time that they're doing it wrong and that they should make a change. Because as far as you're concerned, these guys must be geniuses because they just sold a ton of records, you know. And I was thinking about it too. I don't know that there's any band that has ever become this popular this quickly, right? I mean, they literally, once once Appetite took off, they be- went from mm-hmm. being a, a club band to opening arenas, to headlining arenas and headlining stadiums in such a short period of time. Mm-hmm. and And they were a pretty dysfunctional band to begin with, what well, with drug and alcohol problems and Axl Rose having mental health issues, you know, and all of that is just, just, you know, mirrored and magnified, I think, on this record. And you're right, John, nobody is in any position to tell them no.
2: Right. No, but also do I mentioned with Mac. Um... Tusk, you know, if you want to look at it this way, I mean, kind of in a way, you know, th- that Fleetwood Mac lineup, you know, with Lindsay Buckingham and Stevie Nicks, they'd only been together for, what, you know, two or three years, and they recorded, you know, Fleetwood Mac Fleetwood Mac record, uh, which had Rhiannon, and then they did uh, Rumors, which is a huge album, again, equal in terms of, like, you know, albums that have been sold a lot, and then they followed that album up with, with Tusk, and again, a sprawling record that really didn't have any hits, and you had songs like Sarah, and you had uh, Tusk, you know, are those, you know, well-known Fleetwood Mac songs? No. Here's a band, Guns N' Roses, where they actually had, you know, tucked in these albums some really well-known songs, and songs that became hits. So in comparison, yes, that, you know, we could, could say that like, that lineup of Fleetwood Mac existed for about, you know, five or six years. They did two albums. They did Tuscan's kind of adventurous record. Here's, you know, the same situation with Guns N' Roses. And I think Guns were, were more successful in terms of their you know, punch in that way. But, you know, both albums have a sufficient amount of filler.
3: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Okay, so second song uh, featuring Izzy Stradlin on vocals, Dust and Bones.
1: Uh, This is the first bit of filler. It sounds just like a, I feel like I've heard it before. It sounds like it opens, like it's, you know, part of some sort of, um, if you've ever, (laughs) ever seen like, Portlandia does this whole sketch about we can write a song that'll open your you know movie about the west in three minutes, you know what I mean and they just keep writing these songs over and over again. And so it sort of pulls up all these it's cinematic in the way it is, but it's almost cliched in the cinema that it it calls to mind. I didn't have any trouble um under, you know I, I mean I, I I had trouble with uh, understanding the lyrics like I couldn't really I didn't care to hear what the story was, you know what I mean So, um, and again, it just sounded like something I'd heard before, like over and over again.
3: So, Mike? Again, if you know, we're going to look at the
2: keepers and you know, songs to to delete from the list. This for me is a keeper only because I think here's a chance where we have um, a situation where we have you know the guitar interplay kind of return. Um, You you can hear Izzy's rhythm guitar, you know, Pan Hard Laugh, it's working, it's there um i'm also a big fan of the izzy stradden solo records and this easily could have been a song on the izzy uh, solo albums that you know, followed this stuff um you know I, I just love the fact that you know, you have an album where you open with act to sing and then the second song is basically an izzy song and he's singing kind of like okay here's ace fraley <laughs> he's gonna sing a song now you know that's a, that's a bold move that's a big step for the band um and i i kind of like the storyline i'm into it it's kind of like a guy there's like a tale of, of woe like you know people are sleeping around and doing different things and you know that's all right you know and sometimes these women are so easy sometimes women are so hard you know that's it's true (laughs) it's true to life it's a guy to tell the tale i i I buy into it straight away
0: yeah i actually i i think this is one of the stronger songs on the record um so it's interesting that we're all having very different reactions to these (laughs) songs um yeah i, I it, it's kind of like in momentous more you, the, uh, you know the the whole point of the song is uh, you know for all of the problems we have you know always remember that one day you'll die and yeah. uh and you know it's a it's a heavy sentiment and i think it's it's well delivered i think they they sell the song well um i dig the arrangement i think the piano uh fits in nicely and adds to it um unfortunately this is a song they don't really play live now that Izzy's not in the band anymore, but this is one I would definitely yeah. put on the album and I would definitely want them to bring back into the, into the live set because I think it's, uh, it's a strong tune.
2: Yeah, I've, I've seen uh, bootleg footage of uh, them on the early you know, tours on this record. And, you know, they did it, and then all of a sudden Izzy was out, and that was it. So by the time Dave, you and I got to see them in Pittsburgh, you know, Izzy was out of the band, Gilbert was in, and there was no chance this song being in the set. So it, it, it definitely was really cool to hear it live
0: yeah i think i might have heard you know because i saw them earlier on this tour too but we'll get into all that okay okay um okay and then we have the first cover uh live and let die
1: my notes that i put were okay uh it doesn't really i don't really see much of a point of even having it i like the wings version you know, I mean, I sort of like the way that they hard rock it up and the, you know, the da-na-na, da na you know, there's a lot more um, p- present on their version, mm-hmm. but I don't really see why they even bothered to do it. I mean, it's it's like, um, it's like Axl or, they have like this penchant for like 70s soft rock. You know what I mean, Mm. or something. I I don't know how to explain it. Like there's there's moments on this album where I'm like, this sounds like something I'd hear on seventies AM radio, and literally "Live and Let Die" is something I would have heard on seventies AM radio. So it's okay. I mean, I don't mind it when it comes on the radio. I listen to it, you know. But there's nothing, and I like that it you know rocks up the song a little bit. But there's nothing that really stands out for me. Good, Mike.
2: When it came out and I first heard, I thought it was kind of hokey. You know, I mean, you know, the, the, the Wings version is great. Um, you know, be, does anybody really need to cover this song? You know, debatable. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, you're going to imitate like a horn section with uh, an overly distorted guitar. I remember driving around with my sister a few years ago when she came out to visit me here in Los Angeles. we were listening on the radio. I hadn't listened to it in years. All of a sudden, it came on, and my sister was like, "Why is it so distorted? What's going <laughs> on there?" Like the guitar tone on this record is a little harsh. You know, it's it not, is harsh. It's not, you know, slash. On so Appetite, his tone was warm, you know, it was inviting, it was, you know, welcoming.
0: Well, he re recorded the well, vast majority yeah. of it on Appetite. That's probably why. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so I think the guitar tones that that kind of leads us into the mixing, right? Um, mm-hmm. And, and I think this album in particular. Bob Clearmountain supposedly did mixes and whatever Axel liked slash hated and vice versa, yeah. and so then they had somebody else mix it. The guy but did the Sex Pistols. Sex Pistols, right? Yeah. Yeah. But before that, and I know this because I was working. At Signet Sound, they did they were searching for mixers and they would try out mixers. They'd give them like one or two or three songs and like okay. just kind of like take a shotgun approach until they could find somebody that they liked. So all these like all the multi-tracks for the usual losing albums were all at Signet Sound. And like wow. the band apparently would come in as this this girl I knew, Melissa Sewell, said that uh Axel like poked his head into the tape vault at one time and looked around and said, that's a lot of tapes. And Melissa said, Yep. You know, uh, so she was more of a Don Dockin kind of girl. But uh nonetheless, uh, I remember talking to one of the mixers that got tried out to mix this album. Uh his name was Tom. I can't think of his last name. But anyhow, he said, Man you have not lived until you have soloed up like seven double tracked vocals of axel screaming at like 110 dbs wow. and tried to mix that into something workable <laughs> you know it's like wow. and you could just you can hear that on this album that they are struggling sometimes in the mixes to to make them work um. Yeah. And a, a lot of the vocal doubles too for a guy who's so much as a perfectionist as Axel are not especially tight. You know. Yeah. I mean, this is before they were using Pro Tools, and you could really tighten things up as much as you wanted. But still, there's a lot of loose doubling going on here that they're trying trying to make work. I actually like this song. I mean, it was a James Bond song, mm-hmm. right?
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. Yeah.
0: And I and I think that there is kind of like a uh, noir-esque kind of thing going on, particularly on several cuts on this album. And this, uh, and this, uh, song kind of plays into that. And, you know, uh, I think you hit on something, John, saying that this album is very cinematic and Mm -hmm. so it kind of makes sense that they would cover a song that was essentially the theme song to a movie. Um, so moving on from, from that, Don't Cry, one of three versions of this song that they put out.
1: Yeah, uh, well, I don't know why they spent... I know this is apparently the first song that they've ever written or something like that. I don't know what... Yes, the
0: the first song that they ever wrote, and I think they probably had a sentimental attachment to it because... Yeah, yeah, because it's
1: pretty much a pleading, boring ballad. I don't really get it, like, why they consider it so great. You know what I mean? It's not particularly epic. It's not particularly, like you know, beautiful in its simplicity. It's just kind of there. Um, I count it as, I mean, I guess it was one of their first videos to come out for it, but I think this is one of those songs that they need to sit down and say, this isn't as good as you think it is, man. But um, it just doesn't stand out to me. It's kind of just a standard, boring ballad. Um, And at this point, I don't think you can have any standard ballads from them anymore. You know What I mean, because of the level that they're at, you know what I mean? It just doesn't make any sense. And it obviously, since it's their first song and it's it, it smells of filler a little bit, you know what I mean? Like, we need another thing to put on it, we'll just put Don't Cry on it. But I don't know. good ahead, Mike. I dig it. Uh, it's
2: you know, granted, it's you know, you can have too many ballads on a record, but I, you know, again, because of um. You know, this is also a song we hear that some of the guitar interplay between Izzy and Slash, you know, because that's Izzy basically playing the opening riff and you can hear some imperfections in the way he's playing it. And it, that's, that me be like, you know, Stone's record, you know, some of the, the coolest things on Stone's record are the, the mistakes, you know, the, the misfires in a way. Um, I think the, the solo is, is, is bitching. It's a great solo from Flash. Um, I think this song sounds huge live. I would love to have heard it in the early days in a club. I'm sure it would sound even bigger. Um, you know, but it, lyrically, is it really the most interesting song. No, um, you know, but much like uh, you know the previous track Wasn't Let Die," I mean, it was a hit for a reason because it worked. You know, it, they had a video behind it; it worked in a live situation. Um, and for me, that's good enough reason to put it on a record. And and the fact that it survived in that way, you know, gives it you know credit and gives it its due in a way. I like it.
0: Okay, I'm I'm with John on this one. I don't okay. think it's that strong a song. I think that. You know there's several songs on this record that are left over from the early days that i think they felt were too strong to not put out but weren't necessarily mm. as strong as they were capable of writing at that at currently you know what i mean mm. and uh i think the chorus has a fantastic melody to it mm-hmm. um but i think the verses are kind of trite and it you're right it doesn't really go anywhere it doesn't take you on the kind of journey that the other mega ballad on this album takes you on, which, we'll, which we will get to. So if I had right. to, to choose between this and the other ballad, I got to go with the other ballad.
3: Um, okay. Perfect crime. Uh,
1: this song does uh, rocks pretty strong. I don't, uh, I, Again, I can't, I didn't have any time to really look up lyrics for this stuff, and so I can't make sense of any of the lyrics or whatever. It's like, is, is he stating that he's put off, you know, he's like, just leave me alone. Is he stating that he's pulled off the perfect crime or the people taking advantage of Guns and Roses have pulled off the perfect crime? Then they have the T-109, which I feel like should be some sort of symbolic thing, or perhaps it's just nonsense. <laughs> um, but it rocks pretty hard. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I like it. You know what I mean? It, it, it um, you know, I like the, his vocal delivery in it. You know what I mean? It's real passion. I just wish um, I could get what it was about. Um, but it, it definitely has sort of a punk feel to it or punk vibe to it, but I just want more from it. Mike?
2: I think the T-109 refers to the amount of time left on the track. Uh, <laughs>
3: Okay. There you yeah. go. All right, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Because you, you look at it, you know this is you know old school. If you look at an old CD player and you see the running time. Um, you basically do the math backwards you have a minute and nine seconds left you know, to hear the song. Big deal, right? Who cares? Um, right. I you know we talked about songs that are, are filler. I think this filler. It's it's just too damn busy lyrically to even understand what the hell is going on. Like you know you anytime somebody has to hand you lyric sheets, so you understand what they're saying. You've got a problem. You know when it comes to songwriting. It's a, it's a great riff. It's kind of punk. It's, it's, it's also a, a co write by Izzy, uh, which in, that, in, in, that, in my book would, would work. But in this case, it's just too damn busy and too damn fast. And it's, it's, it's
0: forgettable. Yeah, I, I like the overall energy of the track. And I think it's, I think the, it's catchy in terms of the chorus, but I don't think it's fully realized. I think there's a song here. Maybe it's a matter of combining this song with double talk and jive, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's this kind of noir-esque kind of lyric thing going on, but John's totally right. It's a bit vague. You know, a Mm -hmm. lot of Axel's lyrics are complaining about (laughs) how he's been mistreated or done wrong by various people or institutions or women or what have you. And this one. You know if you put a gun to my head i don't know that i could specifically uh zero in on what he is exactly complaining about
2: yeah, yeah. And once you once you've heard a song like that you've heard a song like that you know and you don't need to you know repeat yourself you got a great riff you know then justify that and, and back it up with a great lyric you know yeah i mean and then again you know there's a lot of material on this record i, I wouldn't have, would not want to be in that position to say okay We've got, you know, 16 songs on this record and we'll have it on the other ones So we would going really keep. always we we'll put that double record, you know?
3: Right. <clears throat> Is that the best call? Probably not. You Ain't the
1: First. Is this what Izzy sings this? Again, yeah. another one sort of country-western kind of vibe to it, mean breakup song, but totally, totally, totally forgettable and kind of mean. So I don't really necessarily, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I understood what was going on. With it. Um, but I just, I, I don't know, man. I, I don't know. Like these, this album, okay, so seems to be them exploring all the different rock genres. There are blues, there's even sort of like, um, you know what I mean? This is sort of this country Western rock thing or country rock or whatever the hell they call it now. Um, but it's like, I want to hear the old, Guns and Roses. I don't want to hear something that sounds like something else. And this is literally, I, I, I mean, I'm not, I don't, I'm not, I refuse, to, I really go out of my way to skip songs when I'm like doing this, but I really just want to jump this song. I, you know what I mean? Or skip it. I really don't. It's totally forgettable. There's nothing to it. Good, ahead, Mike.
2: To me, this is a keeper for a, a several reasons. One is it's basically a, an Easy Stradlin solo song like he wrote the damn song and he's playing he's singing it and some of my favorite moments on rolling stones records are those Keith Richards tracks where he wrote the song and he's doing the vocals and with this an album that has so much density in terms of you know notes and overdubs and layers of guitars you need a break sometimes you know I mean and this is to me is a welcome break
1: um
2: but again I'm also a huge fan of these, these uh, uh solo records I, I think they're great and I, I think the guy just tells you know, a great story, particularly that last verse. He says, you know, so long you were You know, so long if you're well. I can't hear your uh, crying, your jibings and helps look, we walking down the street at night. I'll be in with another bee down inside. It's kind of like, you know, the relationship is over, you know, but I might be, you know, still in, in the same area as you, but, you know, forget it, it's done, you know, it's, it's closure in a way and it's confidence. I, I dig it. I think it tells a great story and it's like me to break with such a densely uh, layered record.
1: Yeah, it gives
0: you a chance to kind of catch your breath and cleanse your palate. And to me, it sounds like a, like a Lost Stones track, you know, mm. and I, I dig it. I, I, I think it's kind of poignant. And and I those lyrics at the end kind of spoke to me, too, that whole sense of when you're living in a neighborhood and you're, you know, hanging out in the same social circles, but a relationship ends. So, you know, you're going to see that person around and it's going to be weird and awkward and you're going to be with whoever the new person is you're dating. And that's just the way it's going to be. But, you know, there's still that, that little tug in your heart. And, yeah, so I, I dig this song. Another song that I would love to see them add back into the live set that they don't play.
2: Yeah, I was just recently listening to uh, Stone's uh, No Expectations. They've got the same kind of feel. You know, that it's, it's so way back and it works. It's such a, you know, a moment in time that's pause. It. It's like,
3: okay, great. Then we'll get back yeah. in the head. It's, you know. Yeah. I, dig yeah. I,
0: I dig it. And the heaviness is bad obsession.
1: Uh, I like the cowboy or cowbell and harmonica, but it's a little cliche. Uh, I mean, I actually, I mean, obviously it's about heroin or whatever, um, but the only lyric that really stands out to me about it is when Axel calls his mom, the C word because right. he really is talking from it. And I think, did Izzy write this? It looks like Izzy wrote it when I checked the credits on it. And I knew Izzy. that Izzy was.
2: Yeah, Izzy and Wes are a team.
1: Okay. Yeah. That, to me, at first, I'm like, wow, you really can't do that, man. You can't call your mom. that. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> but at the same time, I'm from Pittsburgh, man. They slapped you for that. Yeah. But, they, um, but I think that for a moment, you're seeing this from like a real live addict's point of view. You know what I mean? Like how crazy it is to be a heroin addict and that's all you care about to the point where you are leaving bad mouth your mother. Um, but then it just goes into, I mean, and I like that l- line, you ain't special. You know what I mean? Just because you're Axl Rose doesn't mean you're not going to go down this, this, uh, you know, this deadly slide of doom or whatever. Um, but other than that, it still feels a little cliche. It doesn't feel like a finished song. Like, I like it, but I don't love it. You know what I mean? I'm not going to put it on like a playlist or anything like that. I'm not going to say like, this is a guy that gets addiction. You know what I mean? Or something like that. (laughs) This is a song about addiction that you should listen to. You know what I mean? I'm sure there's somebody out there who's like coping with opioids right now. Who's like listening to this and being like, okay, that's what I got. You know what I mean? But it just, it's all, I don't know. Like they're talking about something really dark in their history and, um, and it just comes off cliche I feel like, I wish they had spent more time on it. That's all. I mean, there's some great lines in it. But it just just keeps cycling back through that, you know, I'm sick in the head I'm and I gotta leave you alone, you know, that kind of thing. So that's my thing. Like, I like the song, but I don't love it. It's not going to be like my favorite song ever. I would put it on the the condensed one album version. Good. Mike, what do you think?
3: I like it for a few reasons, but also you know, to your point, John, I,
2: I see your point where it's almost like if you compare it to Mr. Brownstone, that's a much better song about chemical intake in a way. You know, yeah, structurally, uh, musically and lyrically.
1: Um, well, it's interesting because the, Mr. Brownstone in no way, shape or form makes any apologies about being on heroin. They're like, I'm on heroin. You know what I mean? Like, and this is what it does. This, on the other hand, is sort of like a, oh, I'm, I'm going to leave it behind me. You know what I mean? Like, I, I gave up on it, but now I still want to do it again. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's sort of why Mr. Brownstone, to me, is like almost a better song, because it's completely unapologetic about it. Sorry, go
2: ahead. Well, and also for me, I think the things that I find interesting musically about this is, you know, we talk about the guitar industry, right? Well, you know, once the guitar starts on this record, that's easy. And he's playing like mm-hmm. a small combo amp, and it sounds like a cool track, and all of a sudden you get this screaming guitar, which is a Slash plays this thing called Travis Bean, which is a guitar that has a Luna neck. It goes mm. all the way through the back of the body. It's a screaming loud guitar, and it's there is that eliminates any guitar in play whatsoever. Slash you know, <laughs> yeah. comes do with that,
3: that, that tone. It's right huge,
2: yeah, it's a huge tone. It works was like whoa, hold on. Man. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's a little too long. You know, it goes on forever. And yeah, I mean, I like it. I want to like it because I like tracks that just kind of rock, but. As much as I like it, I, I don't think I would include it on, you know, the single album that we're sort of, you know, uh, focusing on is the the uh, you know, closure for these uh, discussions. You know, it, it, it's interesting, but like they, they've written better songs about the subject matter before, you know, and just because they play some great slide guitar playing on a record doesn't mean it's, it's a great song.
3: Okay,
0: I agree with you that this is sort of well-trod lyrical territory for them in, in some ways, and maybe they've done better songs about it before but there is still something that's interesting and cool about this take in the way that it compares you know the singer's obsessions with heroin and the singer's obsessions with women Mm -hmm. essentially saying that you know they are essentially kind of the same thing and the consistency is you know not what they are but his attitude towards them and i think that in and of itself makes the song interesting enough that I would put it on the condensed version.
3: Okay. Okay. Uh, but that said, too, I mean, I, I've
2: seen live on, on this tour, and we all have, you know, at least, you know a few of I, they, they would play this song live, but, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, people are taking breaks. They're so like, I need to get a you know, Sinatra or a Pepsi or something. And I could use it in the restroom. It, it's a shame because, you know, bands write a ton of material, and Gun Girls always play these expansive sets. And it's like <laughs> they give people way too many opportunities to take a break and, you know, Take a pause and go you know, buy some confessions.
3: Okay, back off, bitch.
1: In my notes, I wrote, "Who cares?"
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> this, is, this is like their first, what one of their earlier songs again, not particularly uh, touching, kind of mean. I don't, you know, it, it nothing, nothing that stands out. I'm sure there's probably something musically that I'm missing here, but it just is totally forgettable. And it's just, I mean, it feels like a song I've heard like a billion times, you know what I mean? Um, you know, I don't know, it just doesn't, that's, they, they seem to be choosing genres to write in and then writing in that genre, you know what I mean? And this sounds like that like classic rock 70s thing, you know what I mean? So it doesn't really stand out. Um, so no, I don't, I don't really give a crap about it. Mike, tell me what I'm wrong about.
2: Uh, this is one that I would skip. You know, it, it seems like it's filler. And, and, and Greg, I think it's one of the songs that was written in, in the old days. You know, before they did the, you
1: know,
2: uh, or whatever. And, uh, I think the co-writer, uh, Paul, I think it's, it later became known as Paul uh, Hugey. He later played. He replaced Gilby Park in Guns N' Roses, and he also I think played guitar on their version of Synthesis for the Devil." that was on I think a, a soundtrack. Hmm. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's just like a juvenile point of view, like, right? you know, anybody could write a song like Back Up Bitch, you know, it, but, you know, how are you going to really you know, solidify that lyric? You know, that, that's your course and that's what you got? You know, it just seems silly. You know, if somebody said, oh, I've got a song that's called Back up Bitch. he
1: written about <laughs> yeah. his dog, that'd be cooler. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think,
0: I, here's the thing. I think musically, in terms of the accompaniment, this song actually is pretty strong and has a lot of potential. Like, It could have been a song on Appetite. I love what they do with the the riff and where they turn around the way they're playing the feel of it. The... You know, that to me is really cool, but the chorus is so trite and so, you know, forgettable that I think the song doesn't pay off and doesn't work because of that. So... Because of that, yeah, I wouldn't
3: put it on on the comp on the, the best of album, shall we say. Double talking jive.
1: I actually kind of like this song. Just for, it has the cool uh opening with the guitars and the um bass. Um you know, the the vocal effect is kind of neat. It's uh an interesting solo. Like I kind of like it. I um nobody likes i mean it's kind of an interesting story i guess it's it's written by izzy or whatever and i'm assuming it's when izzy was a drug dealer or something Um, well
0: supposedly the the uh, the line found a a head and an arm in a garbage can they were recording in one of the studios and yeah that stuff was literally found and it was like the body of some porno guy or something yeah crazy yeah Yeah.
1: okay and then the, the flamenco part at the end is kind of most people, I mean, I, I would I thought it was kind of interesting. It, it comes out of left field, but it's kind of me <laughs> kind of like it. So I actually like the song. I again, I like the sort of uh, flange and chorus on the bases or on the bass itself. Nice sort of interplay with the guitars and stuff. Um, but uh, again, I mean, again, it, it's kind of I mean, I'm assuming I can tell what it's about. You know, it's about like just how bad it is in LA, I guess, or, or, you know, people making deals in LA or something like that, you know, some, it obviously is something to do with drug deals about, give me the money, I got no patience, you know, that kind of stuff, but I don't mind it, I actually, it's actually one of the songs that I remember from the album, as like kind of liking it, so, Mike, what do you think?
2: I dug it straight away. And now that you know, we're, we're talking about this album, I mean, most of the songs that I like in this record were written by Izzy. In a way, if you, you could almost do like an EP or almost a full record with all the Izzy tracks, and it would be a great Izzy album, you know, with like special
1: guests,
0: Axel
2: and Slash and, you know, Dustin, and Max <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, good
0: point. So kind question of, for you, Mike, what is yeah. your favorite Izzy solo album? Because I haven't really checked them out.
2: Um, First one uh, is, is great. Um, is that
0: Izzy and the Juju Hounds?
2: Yeah, that's great. Because you have um, Charlie Cantana playing drums. I think Duff is on a couple of tracks. you got Rick Richards from Georgia Satellites playing badass guitar. I think Mark Ford is on the first track. Um, you know, that's enough to make any record, you know, good record, in my opinion. Uh, 117 Degrees is, is great, too, uh, because it's basically the same lineup with the exception of, uh, I think, Duff doing more bass um, and rather than Jimmy Asher doing bass. Um, but after that they get kind of spied but like the first two um the juju hounds and 117 degrees they're they're both great you okay know, they're inter- they're entertaining they're funny i think they're lyrically witty and there's just some badass you know great blues guitar blues slide guitar playing on this record they're killing Izzy's voice i love it it's kind of like a you know a, a mix between like Keith keepers and joe perry in a way you know if you mm. put those, those two together and you know it, it's it's like edgy but you know bluesy and confident laid
0: back at the same time i dig it i dig it
3: that's cool yeah um you know
0: i like this song to me it feels like a sketch of a song though like Mm -hmm. i think that you know that they didn't know where to take it and so then they said well if we don't know where to take it we could at least take it someplace interesting and Mm -hmm. weird and so they did the flash guitar flamenco thing which is cool in and of itself i don't know that it really works or fits in with this song um I think there's a better song to be written, taking elements from "Perfect Crime" and elements from this song, and making mm-hmm. one really strong song that's kind of dealing with the noir esque aspects of the dark underbelly of L.A. So, mm-hmm. because these songs are not that, I would have to leave this one
3: off. Okay. Well,
2: I, I think also from like the songwriting structure point of view, I mean, what if you use like that, you know, that F. You know, I guess the tune that has to down this is all technical. If you go from the F to the E and, and treat that as like a bridge or a solo section, and then come back into another verse.
3: Hmm.
0: Okay. You know,
2: and then do another chorus. Then it would have been, you know, interesting, more so. You know, but like granted, as cool as that riff is and cool as the solo and the slash is doing is, you know, it's it kind of doesn't really serve the song well because it just kind of dies off like into this, you know, solo thing. And then okay, what do you do now? Well, I've already played for you know, sixteen bars electric, let's go to sixteen bars acoustic, you know. It's <laughs> like really, no. I, I don't know. Yeah, but I, I like it lyrically too because I, I love the second verse where he's saying, like, you know, back in town and all new friends saying, how you been, you know, fucked up and out of place. with how I felt back then. You know, it's kind of like saying, hey, how you been? Well,
3: yeah. I yeah, no, right there, there is
2: a refreshing
0: yeah. kind of honesty that that's in his lyrics that it is very relatable. And I'm sure that those guys, um, maybe not the most socially well-adjusted guys to begin with, you know, having something happen to them that very few human beings can, you know, relate to on any level that, that type of overnight mega stardom, I'm sure they felt incredibly fucked up and out of place.
2: And also too, like even in their, you know, early days of, you know, the climb up to to stardom, I think some of these guys, I think Izzy and Axel would you move here and then move back for a while and then come back up to Los Angeles, you know? Oh, really? Yeah. So it's kind of like, oh, well, you're back home now. how well, that was going. like,
0: that's kind of a reoccurring theme in his songwriting and Axel's songwriting is yeah. how much of a culture shock it was to, you know, come out here as a young adult and try to, uh, you know, succeed as in the music business when you weren't sure where your next meal was coming from. And, and you know, like they definitely, you get the impression that the whole experience just scarred them for life.
2: Yeah, and it, it's also, you can like, you know, I mean, this it's kind of personal in a way, but I remember having a conversation with somebody before I moved here 20 years ago, and they were saying, oh, I don't know, you know, you got to be careful out there, you could get eaten alive, it can be kind of tough, and I like said, I'm going to get there, it's going to be fine, it's going to work out, you know, and I'm still yeah. here, you know, so, <laughs> right, whoever <laughs> that is. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah you don't know we're from the steel city man, I mean, yeah, come man. On. Come on. Please. yeah yeah anyway. so, so moving on yeah
3: november yeah. rain
1: uh there's really nothing to say about this because it's like a perfect song it's almost yeah. like they just should have put out an ep with this on it and a couple yeah. other songs <laughs> um it's got you know i mean it's their stairway to heaven with their little mix of elton john with mm-hmm you know, plenty of buildup. And I mean, it's a perfectly orchestrated song. Um, the um, I mean, they played this to death when it came out. I mean, I remember hearing it constantly and being really sick of it. And I mean, and again, this is this is me. Um, I did. I didn't buy this album. I didn't care about Guns and Roses. You know what I mean? I was out of paying any attention to this kind of stuff um so I really I all I really heard were their singles and this was played all the time And I remember like well wow, this is really good this is kind of their this is a little overblown and pretentious but I like overblown and pretentious so you know I actually kind of like this song you know with the the you know the orchestra behind it and everything and you know the the bombastic video and I remember seeing the video and going going wow Axel Rose is really ugly <laughs> But um, that's about it. I mean, this is just this is literally sort of their stairway to heaven or whatever.
0: Funny story about that video, so they they uh, used the string section like from the student USC orchestra, like the violins Mm -hmm. and stuff. So when I was going to USC, uh, they they did the call for the video shooting. And uh, one of the guys that I knew from there, Eugene, who was a violin player, uh, ended up in the video and I was, you know, I was so jealous. I was looking. I'm like, I know that guy. That's
1: Eugene. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Nice forever immortalized yeah yeah what's eugene doing now
3: i have no idea
1: oh, really
3: hope <laughs> oh, we're still playing string, right yeah stay.
1: oh it's funny all right go ahead, mike what do you think i mean it, it's an amazing
2: track I mean, this is you know obviously i keep it for the record and those core changes are just so beautiful you know it's very elton john um and i, I wouldn't say too there was a doc. they did like a series of documentaries on the videos which were like don't cry uh, November Rain. I forget what the other one was. Estranged, um,
1: maybe. Estranged. Yes. Yeah. Trilogy or whatever. Yeah. Th-
2: those yeah. are worth watching. They're they're entertaining. And they're funny. And there's a lot of interplay between like you know the guys in the band and their sort of hangers on. And I want to say that in that documentary, um, Axel said he was inspired by seeing Tommy Lee play piano on um, Home Sweet Home mm. at the time, and it, that's, that was his sort of influence to, to write this kind of song in a way. Um, you know, but also too the John you mentioned Elton John. Uh, there's a scene, too, where I think where they talk to Matt Sorum, and that was basically given direction from Axel saying, you know, give me something like um, uh, drum kills on someone's save My Life Tonight from the, um, uh, what's the Elton John record? Uh, Captain Fantastic. You know, you do this sort of repetitive fills, you know, in, in those days. Mm-hmm. So, so I mean, obviously, you know, it was, it was an influence on the song, you know, and the soloing is just, you know, amazing. I mean, you got great melodies, you got great chord changes, and there's great, the great songs from Slash. you know, this is like, if you want to be like you know the, the bombastic like overblown and, and well you know overproduced you know you could say this is this is a really strong track for good, for goodness sakes you know i mean this this, this any band that could write a song like this and record that and put that out is you know, mega in my opinion and, and they they were it well yeah
1: there's nothing wrong with the song no. you know what i mean it, you can't not like it even if you're like you know whatever Well, because
0: it it takes you on a journey too, Mm -hmm. you know, and it does it in a really kind of clever way. I mean, it it sort of plays with Axel's whole weather Equals emotions thing that he's alluded to before on Sweet Child of Mine, uh, you know, praying for the thunder and the rain to quietly pass you by. But it does it in an even more clever way, because now you have the factor of time, which is like sort of another theme on this album. And so when he says nothing lasts forever, you know, uh, you know, in this cold November rain, initially he's talking about love, but then by the end of it, he's talking about the, you know, nothing lasts forever being this dark period of his life, the cold November period, the cold Mm. November rain itself can't last Mm. forever. And so there's this kind of like realization, um, that, that he undergoes by the end of the song, that everybody in, at the end of the day is the same and everybody needs you know, someone in a relationship to, Uh, to, to complete themselves and to feel better about life and, you know, and, and we're all human and we all, we all need that type of connection. And it's a beautiful song eloquently expressed with one of his great performances, one of the greatest solos by Slash ever. So yeah, obviously this song is the centerpiece of this album.
2: Yeah. And, and again, it draws from so many great influences. Like back to the Elton John thing, um, there's a lot of synth kind of, you know, playing that's going on here. And you listen to like, you know, someone saved my life today. and uh, Stones tracks from uh, Black and Blue, like "Full to Cry and Memory Motel." There's a lot of cool, you know, ARP synth tracks, you know, the Paul Stanley also used on uh, uh, Hold Me, Touch Me. You know, it, it's, a, it's a sound of, of that period. It, it's absolutely dated. But as you pull it out, you know, 10 years later, 20 years later, it works. You know, it's almost like an imitation. you know, Symphony in a way. You know? So, you know, it makes sense that the guy would sit there and okay, look, we're gonna try sound like you know, a symphony and use his keyboard and it worked out. But it works. It's a sound that works, it's dated, but it becomes refreshed and something new. And you know, think of that when you hear those that the synth parts. That it kind of takes you back to those old
3: records. And to me, that's cool. You know, that shows maturity in terms of your uh you know, knowledge of music. Moving on to the garden.
1: I liked Alice Cooper's uh, audio it's actually one of my favorite songs in it because it's so I mean it's the lyrics are so vague and yet so kind of you know I mean about the garden is life or whatever and, and you mess around and make the wrong decisions and things like that but it's I like the I like the Alice Cooper vocal on it um and um It's actually a keeper for me, even though I feel like I need to listen. It's a song I want to listen to a a few more times to sort of get what it's about. Totally. I mean, I read the lyrics and the lyrics are, you know, something about losing your virginity to a a gypsy and, you know, we all got to be careful in the garden or whatever and that kind of stuff. But I I actually, you know, I like his, um, I actually kind of dig it. It's got like a nice, uh, again, like a 70s psychedelic feel to it or like early, very, like early Alice Cooper type stuff with Alice Cooper on it. Yeah. I, mean, it sounds, I liked it. Mike, what do you think?
2: I, I dig it. Um, it's funny. You compare it to a song like, um, oh, what was it? The Perfect Crime. It was relatively short, right? It's yeah, like yeah. Two minutes, 20 seconds, and I'm bored with it. Uh-huh. <laughs> this song is, you know, what, like five and a half minutes long? I, I don't it really lose interest in it. I think it's, you know, yeah. those Beatles sort of descending chord changes in the verse are great. Um, and it definitely also sounds you know, like early Alice Cooper as well, you know, so it, it, it works, and, and the lyrics are interesting enough to, to sort of draw you in and, what, you know, you want to delve in and understand it more so the more you listen to it. There's some great slide guitar playing from Slash, you know, and yeah. it's interesting too when you have, like, you know, Alice doing his uh, vocal part, but then it's, like, backed by the screaming lead guitar at the same time, you know? Somehow that works. In theory, that should not work, you know, but it does
3: work, you know? <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's a side of Guns N' Roses Psychedelia we haven't really seen before. And I think it's cool. Alice Cooper has a bunch of cameo appearances all over these albums. Um, yeah. There's one in an earlier song that we failed to mention. But, um, yeah. Yeah. you know, the only thing that's weird to me about it, and I, I think his spoken word thing works for this song because it, the lyrics are written in part by Del James, who's more of a poet. And so it kind of works as a spoken word, but like, Al, Alice doesn't really do any singing on in any of his guest appearances mm-hmm. on this album. It's all kind of spoken word, which I, I'd love to get the reason why, because obviously mm. Alice can sing, and it might have been more interesting to utilize him as a singer on some of these tracks, but... Um, But I think there's some interesting lyrical stuff going on here. Yes, it's sort of about talking about, you know, entering a world of rock and roll where people do drugs. And, um, you know, I I love the... uh, only poor boys take a chance on this garden song and dance, feel her flowers as they wrap around, but only smart boys do without. But it's not just about drugs. I think it's also about the whole rock and roll world and subculture. Mm -hmm. And um, it's an interesting perspective that we haven't seen before. So, you know, um, like they say, it's it's Easy to write one great song about a subject, but if you can write a hundred great songs about that same subject, then you're a great songwriter. And this is another really cool, interesting song about stuff that they've written about before, but from enough of a different perspective that it doesn't feel like it's rehashed.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting song. It doesn't. Yeah, it holds my interest all the way through.
2: It, it definitely stands apart from, uh, you know, other songs on the record, uh, particularly other songs that it,
0: we call Philly. You know, it's, 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 it's a great track.
1: This would go on the EP that has November rain on.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> Garden of Eden.
1: Uh, it's got a nice punk spirit to it, but again, it doesn't grab me. I mean, it's sort of like everything's all, you know, he's, he's sort of creating this laundry list of everything that's wrong in the world. Um, you know, he does mention some about, I mean, it's funny because he's never going to get away after the things that he said in um, One in a Million. And then he still mentions sort of like racial crimes, who threw the stone first, which I thought was kind of interesting. But Well,
0: he mentions racial violence. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. But I don't, um, I don't particularly like it. It's, it feels kind of rushed. It feels a little, I mean, I like the spirit of it, you know, the, the energy behind it, but it doesn't really, again, it just feels kind of rushed. I mean, it, I wish it had more of a pointed thing that it was talking about. So, Mike, what do you think?
2: Um, I look at it this way: you know, you've got a guy slash writing a riff that's really fast, up tempo, and yes, it's kind of punky in a way, and got a lot of energy, and got Axel writing lyrics. And it's like almost like they're competing. It's like it's okay, you can't play all fast guitar and fast licks and have like all these lyrics and try to you know have like you know, the cadence of those be you know, equal in time with you know with the guitar and the tempo. There's just too much going on. To the point yeah. where I th- with this video, didn't they have like subtitles in, in the video so you could understand what he's actually saying?
0: My recollection of the video was like a fisheye lens yeah. and it was just like yeah, one like shot. A lot
1: of I thought. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm pretty sure they had, they, the right they might have, yeah.
2: Like, you know, CNN or whatever, you know, NBC, whatever. I, I don't know. I mean, I like the energy of it. I like songs that rock, but there's just too much going on here. It's, it's competition, it's unsettling.
0: Yeah, I agree. I I think there's some interesting things going on. You know, essentially he's talking about like, you know, here we are living our lives in the richest country on earth and yet there are all of these problems with, you know, racial violence and and drugs and all this other stuff going on and somehow we're we're lost in what should be paradise on earth. But the message doesn't really come across unless you've got the lyric sheet right in front of you, because you're right. Yeah, there's exactly. so much happening at once that it's just it's like an assault on the senses. And I think you hit it on the nail on the head, Mike, when you said if you need the lyric sheet to understand what the song is about, you might have failed as a songwriter on on this one. So, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't put this on the album.
2: No, it all looks like, you know, odd. I shouldn't say odd. All those like you know sound effects on the end of the vocals before they get into chorus, I mean, it seems like an experiment that you know is dated and doesn't doesn't really stand you know, the test of time. I, I mean, energy is one thing, but like if you have to like enhance a song with like sound effects, then you go you go the wrong street. You know?
0: There is kind of a yeah. feel. It's like everything but the kitchen sink. Throw it up against the wall, see what we can you know stick in there. I'm shocked actually that this song was released as a single.
3: Yeah, and a video.
2: <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, I, even though they played this song live on, on the tours, I could, I, you know, they played a lot of songs on the tours, but of the shows
3: that I've seen, I don't remember them playing it live. It'd be, it'd be tough. Yeah. yeah. Don't damn me. Um,
1: it's got sort of a nice Aerosmith chunky guitar sound. Um, again, I, okay, so I read a review. From a guy in Rolling Stone about this, and he maintains this is the best song on the album. Hmm. Um, I didn't get that, you know, that it's the best song on the album. But it seems to be sort of Axel talking about being Axel and you know that kind of stuff. Um, but it again, my first initial reaction to it was that it nothing really grabs me about it. it sort of sounds like their version of an Aerosmith song. Um, but I just, Hmm. um, I feel like I'm missing
3: something in it, Um, but I don't know what,
1: (laughs) you know what I mean, so Mike, (laughs) tell me what I'm missing, like I read this review, and this guy's like, this is the greatest song on the album, yeah,
2: I'm glad you brought up the Aerosmith thing, John, because in a way, it reminds me of uh, Aerosmith's Sick as a Dog, and also Looking a Promise, in a way, you know, we've got these sort of descending riffs, and you have the ascending riffs, and I don't
3: know. And also, too, Dave, correct wrong, this song starts with the chorus, right? Um, let's see. <laughs> Let me just call up the lyrics real quick. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, it, you know I don't know. I, it, it, I find it interesting.
2: I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But also, too, I mean, they're just, they're just again, they're trying to pack so much into this song. You know the riffs. It's almost like again the competition thing. Right? There's a lot of heavy riffs going on. There's so many lyrics. It's just it's just a lot to digest.
0: Yeah, I like this song though. I think it's obviously Axel's response to the criticism that he got for One in a Million, hmm. and I think it's a fairly eloquent defense uh, of himself, saying that the purpose of art is to be provocative. And if it doesn't antagonize and offend, then maybe it's not art at all. And that he has the right to purposefully say and do things that may upset and disturb some people in the name of pursuing his art and expressing himself. And I I think he, he, he makes that point in a pretty sophisticated way for a rock and roll song. And, you know, because of that, I would actually put this on the
3: best of.
1: Okay. okay. Yeah, because I get the vibe, it's him talking about being him. Um, but I, I just didn't, you know what I mean? It just didn't grab me. I mean, it just sort of sounded like their version of an Aerosmith song, but I see your point. Yeah, it is a reaction song. It's a diss track to his critics.
2: And I think my only you know, you know area of you know, improvement would be, you can do the same thing with, you know, less verses, you know, I mean, you know whittle it down. You know, get, you get your message across. you got a five minute, 18 second song. You can do that in a, in a three minute song and, and it's get your point across. You know, and sometimes you, you'll lose the audience and lose the listener because you're kind of beaten to death with the same thing over and over again. You know? And there's no release. <laughs> it's like, okay, it's, it's relentless. I get it. You know, <laughs> don't damn me. All right. Oh, I
0: heard you, you know,
3: <laughs>
2: can I get to the next track, you know?
0: And yet here you are damning him, Mike. Yes, sorry. <laughs> I'll never get
2: in
3: Guns N' Roses. <laughs> Damn
1: you, Axel.
3: My career is over. Bad Apples.
1: Okay, this is where I, I really, these last two songs I really didn't care for. And then, well, whatever. Bad Apples, I like the sort of uh, vaguely funk opening. Again, mm. I like their idea of like expanding to different rock genres, but again, it doesn't, Nothing stands out to me. Didn't really pay attention to the lyrics. Almost skipped it. Mike.
3: Uh, I'm a big Hendrix
2: fan, particularly the uh, band of gypsies era with uh, Buddy Miles and uh, Billy Cox on bass. Uh, That intro is to me, straight ahead, you know, Hendrix band of Gypsy's era. You know, it's funky, especially with the octave guitar happening. Um, it, it, It sounds like he's playing a Strat, which is absolutely Hendrix to me. It's cool. I think is think
1: the best part of the song? Then? Well,
2: no. I think what I'm trying to say is, you, you know, after all these songs we like have so much going on in terms of guitars and riffs and competition with vocals, this one breathes in a way. It's got finally we got like a funky tune, you know, yeah, something okay. you know that, that we've heard on Appetite that we needed to hear. <laughs> we're, gonna, we're waiting for this. It works. Is it a strong song in terms of you know being like a single? No, but it works as a song. There's got there's a life to it. There's, you know, it, there's a heartbeat to it. And it works. You know, and just the, you know, the idea of, you know, being a genuine imitation, you know, bad apple, you know, tested for your approval. It's, it's funny. It's like, you know, got love for sale. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and mm. my love will not fail you. I, 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 I dig it. it it's, it's a nice relief from, you know, the heaviness of the lyric content and love songs in this record, in a way. I, I dig it. I, I you know, this, I, this is definitely a keeper. I like it. Just because it, it's different, in a way. It's funky. And they need that. This record needs that kind of relief.
3: Okay.
0: Yeah, I, I dig this song. I don't, know, you know, I don't know. It's not necessarily the strongest song, but there's something about. I think what they're writing about is the fact that you always dream that once you become a rich and famous rock star, all of your problems are going to be solved. Mm-hmm. And what they're finding is that actually. They're still the same people, and they still have the same problems in fact, in some ways, they probably have more problems than they ever had before and that that's frustrating for them and and so they're you know turning to chemicals or alcohol to escape from that temporarily and you know i i the line to the spoken word thing I got some genuine imitation, bad apples, free samples for your peace yeah. of mind only nine ninety five is great because it shows that in a way they are aware of how they have been commodified as Mm. the new quote, bad boys of rock and roll. Right. And that they're being sold as something that, you know, really probably isn't an accurate reflection of, of who they are as human beings. Um, and I think it, it that is the first time they've really tied into the whole uh, concept of the, the title of the album, Use Your Illusion. You know, mm-hmm. on one level, they're aware of how they're being marketed and, and they're playing to that. But in another way, they're playing directly against it. I mean, the cover of the album is like what a Rembrandt uh, art variation of an unknown philosopher, you know, mm-hmm. scribbling his philosophy, which, you know, what, what, what could be less sort of badass than that? And yeah. yet, you know, yeah. certainly Axel and Izzy have a philosophical side to them that is all over this album.
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah, it yeah. is interesting. I thought, isn't the name of the painting Use Your Illusion or something? It is, it is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, okay. That was, I thought that, yeah, that's how I took the title of the album as well, that they're using their, all their, yeah, their stuff. Stuff that's been said about them and all that kind of stuff to sort of sell.
2: Yeah. Funny too about you know, the point about you know when you're rich and famous, all your, your problems are solved. I remember seeing the uh NTV documentary and there was an interview with Slasher, he was saying, you know, he was talking to Axel, I said, Hey, you know, I got I got this new apartment, this new house, and I got this refrigerator and it's, it's leaking all over the floor. And I'm absolutely fine with you know leaving it that way, but I know I can't. <laughs> 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 so, Can you imagine being on you know, <laughs> It's like, well, it's fine. I don't, I don't exactly. Whatever. It's really bad, but it's yeah, really
0: well. you know, spoils
2: of Richard. And I, I dig it, it's a great track. It, to me, it, the Hendrix vibe is enough to, to be keeper. You
0: know? Okay. Hmm. Dead Horse.
1: Sounds like they're covering Nirvana. I don't know if Nirvana actually came out at this point. When was Nirvana going to break? I,
2: I wanted to bring, thank you, thank you for bringing it up, I looked up, uh, Nevermind came out, I think in September of 91, uh, but the first Nirvana record was out a year before, so it could have been an influence, you know, at least the first record. It, it feels
1: know. like some sort of influence, I mean, even the title, it almost sounds like a parody of a grunge song, mm-hmm. Dead Horse. It's got, you know, it's it sounds off-kilter. It's got a little maybe of an Alice in Chains vibe, but I don't think they were around yet. But that that sort of alt-rock sound is sort of sl- uh, sneaking into them. Um, I like the song because it sounds sort of a little bit odd and, and gives you sort of a view into like Axl Rose's mental estate. But again, um, yeah, still not a great song though. Um, but I, I see sort of the influences coming at them or whatever. I mean, I, I like it. I mean, lots of bands do these sort of like um, not necessarily non-harmonious, you know, mm-hmm. kind of uh, songs that are supposed to be in your face kind of shock you. And a lot of times bands do it terribly. This one is actually not a bad version. It's not a bad try at it. I mean, what do you think, Mike?
2: I initially didn't find it that interesting, but the more I listen to it, I think it, you know, chord, you know, chord change-wise, it reminds me of The Replacements in a
3: way. All
1: right. Okay.
2: And wow. also, uh, there's also a band that I, I believe is from L.A., fact, almost certainly from L.A., uh, they were called Flies on Fire. And I think their first record was produced by Gilby Clark. Um, they have, like, a lot of songs like this with this kind of, you know, chord changes, like minor chords to the major chords and those mm-hmm. kind of melodies. I and mean, Those albums are worth, you know, checking out. Um, but, you know, I, I think I like the song better now than I did when it came out. I just found it, you know, uninteresting at the time when, when, when the record came out. But I, I can appreciate uh what's going on lyrically uh and thematically but you know it, again it does sound like something would have been like influenced by grunge or you know vice versa i'm not so sure it'll be a keeper but i think there's enough stuff going on lyrically that you know i would i would vouch for keeping this on you know, the record i don't know yeah I think...
1: I, again yeah it doesn't it doesn't knock me off my feet but it's an interesting try you know what i mean An interesting, yeah.
2: I just think it's such a simple approach, you know, chord wise and melody wise, that that's where it becomes uninteresting. It might be a more interesting read than it is an
3: actual song.
0: Okay, I it's interesting that you guys hear those influences. I hear more like Neil Young Mm -hmm. on this uh song myself, and I I, Mm -hmm. again, yeah, I think you're right, it's not a great song. I think it kind of works thematically in that he's talking about. Being sick of life and feeling life is pointless and feeling depressed because that goes right into the very next song, which mm. is Coma, Um, which, you know, as I found an interview with Axel where he was talking about, you know, people think this song is about escaping life by doing drugs and stuff. But really, I you know, it was essentially a suicide attempt. Like he like just swallowed a whole bunch of pills and put himself in a coma. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so it was a, you know, we'll get to coma, but like, I think the song works well as a transition into that song, Mm -hmm. but as, as a
3: song in and of itself, I wouldn't put it on the album. Mm -hmm. I agree. So coma.
1: Uh, I actually like it. It's sort of the, um, Antithesis of November Rain it's like a very sprawling song with kind of a neat story going on it. Uh I like his vocal delivery. They sound like downright desperate, you know what I mean? It's the first time I've sort of heard Axel let himself you know be Axel, you know what I mean? It feels very um confessionary Uh the, the confessional nice <laughs> yeah. Conf- yeah, yeah. Confessional. Yeah. Confessional. Yeah. <laughs> uh it's got a cool yeah. <laughs> And I'm the one who's a registered English teacher. <laughs> the um okay. I like the cool opening with the, you know, the sort of like again, the flange base and the sinister start. Um, and there's a neat little base thing that is a little bit off kilter coming out of the bridge or whatever, or where they slow it down, you know what I mean? I I actually really like this. This is sort of like the flip side to um to November rain. You know, if I Put this out as a single. I would have put this on the side B or whatever. But um, I actually like it a lot. I like the the dialogue over top of it, the sound of the defibrillators and hospital noise and that kind of stuff. I actually, I really kind of like it a lot. I like it sort of in its epicness, um, and I like you know how it's got a lot more sort of feeling to it, obviously because about uh, you know death. But yeah, uh, it's, it's actually one of my favorites on the album. Mike, your opinion?
3: I think it ties in absolutely with the, the
2: cinematic theme that we spoke about. Um, it yeah. works, you know. On one hand, those the sound effects and stuff, you know, I, I, at, at first, I would say they're kind of hokey. But when you look at the cinematic kind of theme, it, it works. You know, it, it takes the song where it needs to go. Otherwise, it, it's just a, it's just a long song with like you know some interesting melodies and kind of a punk rock vibe and a lot of great guitar soloing. But those sound effects and, and vocal ad-libs and you know sort of narratives. Help sell the story in a way um and i personally you know I, i've got friends that i've gone to, to see guns with recently um uh, if they played him and, and you know the guy standing next to me like oh i hate when they play stuff like coma and you know I'm, to me that the, the fact that you can have a band that can play a song like this and get through the arrangement and keep it together is amazing there's a lot going on you know there's a lot to keep track of this isn't you know full bar blues you know or four know, bar blues
3: yeah. there's just
2: a lot to keep track
3: of and it's amazing they can do that I like it. It's a great closing to the you know to the album. Um, I, I dig it. I love the main riff,
0: and in fact, okay. I love it so much that I wrote it years before I heard this song.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> I
0: want to say this is they the should. first you know when we were pre-Cruxter days, John. That dun 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 dun, dun mm. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, great minds think alike.
3: Yes, And
0: uh, <laughs> I, I do think that this song would be better served if it was a little shorter. I don't think that it needs to be 10 minutes long. You know, I, I, I think that there's some great stuff here, but this is one of those cases where I, I wish that they weren't in a position where nobody could say no to them. And like maybe mm. this would be a stronger song if it just clocked in a couple, two, three minutes shorter um, interesting, uh, note about this song and the voices and stuff that, that female voice that comes in when it says, uh, you know, all you want, ever want to do is have sex, sex, oh. sex. Um, so that was a guy I know used to know's wife, who was the receptionist at one of the recording studios that they recorded this thing at. I want to say her name was monica maybe i don't remember but she was just a drop-dead gorgeous model so like there's there was no reason in the world why she wasn't the perfect choice to uh you know get called (laughs) in the studio to record that and uh you know on the whole i like the song i just feel
3: like you know they, they they could have edited it down for a little more conciseness Okay. I'm by that.
2: Yeah, I yeah. I agree. It's almost like, again, you know, like I said about those you know, sort of sound effects and narratives in a way. You know, if you take some of that out, you can you can edit it down, but you're also missing something in a way, you know. And I think the bridges are really interesting too because I'll just great, like, you know, chorus effect on the guitar and stuff and the different vocal approaches. It, it, it's interesting. Um, and I find it funny that, like, I'll try to justify, you know, a 10 minute song in <laughs> <for> this <laughs> record and say it's good. But, you know, some of my favorite albums have songs that are, you know, 15, 20, 25 minutes long, you know, it, it, it's, it shows, you know, a certain confidence. So again, if you sort of add this to the list of songs would be, to make one great song this album, I think this would be a great closing
0: to
3: the, to the whole thing.
0: Fair enough. So where were you guys when this thing came out?
1: I never bought this album. I thought Guns oh. N' Roses was bullshit at this point. I, I was not... <laughs> I was not listening to commercial radio anymore I was in college I was Mr. College Radio you know it was it was uh ironic and cute that I was a Kiss and Iron Maiden fan to a lot of people you know what I mean and and, or or you know um so I was this was when I was in college so there were you know there were other um, Metalheads around, but like I just I thought Guns N' Roses was bullshit at this point. And, and then November Rain, even sort of with its constant play on MTV and stuff like that, I just I just didn't care. So I didn't buy the album. I didn't see him on tour. Um, I just never really liked. I mean, even as far like I've told you, but as far back as Appetite for Destruction, I you know, I've never been a huge fan of Guns N' Roses. And this album. Um, again, you know, now I, you know, there's stuff on it that I would listen to then, but at the time, no, I was, I was all about anything that wasn't on the actual radio, which I know sounds completely pretentious, but that's, I was literally exploring any weird place I could go. And there was a lot of shitty music in the nineties that I look back on that I liked, you know what I mean? I listened to like stuff that I sort of got into and, um, I was like wow this is really terrible i really like this and the but i mean i was you know i was listening to the replacements the feelies jane's addiction i never liked nirvana either um but no this this was like totally the antithesis of what i was interested in at the time so i'll stop mumbling about me mike what about you
2: all right uh if you asked me then you would say um for me Musically, I was going in a backwards direction. I was, you know, not going down the Randy Rhodes, you know, Guitar Hero thing. I was one with Almond Brothers and Steve Ray Vaughn and Jimi Hendrix and, you know, going back that way. Um, but I do remember, to, to get to Dave's question, I remember being, being on vacation in Florida at the time. It, it was the summer of 91. And I had taken with me uh, a copy of R.I.P. magazine that I, I purchased at Eyes, you know, for the ride down. And I was reading R.I.P. and, you know, shared with my friend Joe we were at the beach. And he's was like, hey, by the way, the new Guns and the Brothers record called Use Your Illusion. Oh, that's cool great. But I remember thinking, like, it had been years since we heard lies, you know, and years since we heard Appetite. I thought, what has taken so long? Sometimes you can, you know, go beyond your shelf life in a way. The same thing again happened, I'll mention Food with Mac again, with Tusk. They recorded rumors in 77, Tusk didn't come out until, like, late in 79. You know, people had already forgotten about them in a way. But, you know, somehow guns were able to hold on to that, and, you know, have a lot of great singles and videos, and it it worked. But, again, it was also... um, you know, an expensive record that takes a lot of, of the listener to, you know, to delve in and appreciate. But where I bought the, the you know, the records quote unquote, the seat of uh, the, the cassette was bananas music, um, which was at Edward Town Center, not far from my mom's house in Smithvale. I like, remember okay. being in college knowing like, okay, this comes out on Tuesday. I'll be at the record store in the open. I'll buy it. I'll put it in my 1986 Pontiac Grand M and I'll drive to the University of Pittsburgh on my way to class. And I will you know, see what this is all about. You know, yeah. like, what is this sticker? You know, parental advisory, you know, explicit lyrics. What the hell? <laughs> it, it was that era, you know. So you, you're that to contend with. oh, really? I got labels on my records now.
3: All right.
0: Yeah, I was in line with Ryan at Tower Records, and with wow. I think Elliot and Care. And <laughs> at midnight when this thing <laughs> dropped, we b- all bought like both copies. And yeah, yeah it was uh, it was a whole ritual. Now, John, I assume you didn't see the Use Your Illusion tours at all.
1: No, not at all.
0: OK, then. Uh, okay. So I saw the headlining tour that they did for Use Your Illusion. And this is before Use Your Illusion one or two <laughs> actually came out because they were still being mixed. Mm-hmm. Um, which was a really interesting experience because so many times you go see a arena level band and they play some new songs from the new album. And, you know, you've seen the video, you've heard the single on radio, you have the album and you've played it. And so like, you know, do you really love the new song or is it just intimately familiar to you now and so you're recognizing it and you're going oh yeah it's that song i know that song you know but this was a time when these albums were not out and they were the the set was largely based on material from these albums and Mm -hmm. so you know it was really cool to hear an arena level band playing a bunch of new songs that nobody had ever heard before. And you just, you know, were just taking them on their own merit, hearing them for the first time in a live situation. Um, The other interesting thing about the headlining show that I saw, Guns N' Roses did not go on (laughs) until after 12. I think they went on at like 12.15 at night, which was like maybe three hours after the, the opening act went on and then they played for over 3 hours like they the, the concert like i think ended up um going till 3:30 in the morning which Jeez. you know i'm sure cost them all kinds of money First. but i think it still holds the record as being the longest concert that they have ever played what but did that take place do you know do you remember it was I, you know, I'd have to look it up. Actually, you know what, Mm -hmm. Andrew Carter just wrote an article about this concert. So I'll have to double check and get back Mm -hmm. to you on that. I don't think it was the forum, but I could be wrong. I'd have to double check. Mm -hmm. So yeah, one of those, it was one of those places. Mm -hmm. One of those uh, stone temples as as you will. Um, So then then that summer, they did the co-headlining tour with Metallica.
2: Can I, can I interrupt though? I have yeah. to ask this question because on that tour, that the show that you saw early on on the headline tour, did they have like the horn section and you know and Dizzy replaying keyboards or was it you know, stripped down? Did they have Teddy Andreas playing you know harmonica and keyboards too, or was it more of a stripped down band at that point? You know,
0: you know, it was so. I mean, we're talking 1991 here. Okay, I don't okay. remember. I want to say that they probably had all that. I think Dizzy was with them by okay. then, but okay. I could, I wouldn't swear to it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so then you and I saw them together on the co-headlining tour with Metallica at Three River Stadium the following summer, or that summer.
2: And Faith
0: No More is the opener opener, right?
3: Yes. Yes. So and, what, was,
0: what was your impression of that show?
3: Uh, it was long. It was long.
2: <laughs> only because, you know, when you're hitting an outdoor show at, at this time of Three River Stadium in Pittsburgh, there's always potential, you know, 80% of the time for it to rain. <clears throat> and it rained oh did it <laughs> and it rained and it rained and it rained I and mean, it's to the point where i think um my sister i was standing it was me and my sister today, right so we're standing there my sister. she's wearing her contact lenses it rained so hard that one of her contact lenses fell out oh no onto this red sort of you know um you know cement floor and there's all these bubbles because it's raining right right and all of a sudden it's just like oh I lost the contact lens i look down Put my finger on the right dot. I I, I got the lens. Here wow! You Put it back in. You know, <laughs> let's can we get on with it? But I remember like standing there. Out, you know, Three Rivers. Just like saying, oh, it's okay. We're waiting. We're watching Metallica the time. We're like, oh, okay, this is great. You know, waiting for Guns to come on. I remember uh, James Hetfield cussing out the audience. He's like,
0: "Oh, uh, let, know, me, I guess, let me let me okay. this, right, let me tell, tell it it. It. this. Let me tell you because this is the most yeah. memorable yeah. thing about the show <laughs> for me. Okay, um, so." So it was pissing down rain on the Ooh. audience all throughout Metallica's set. And, it is, and the audience clearly was not very enthusiastic, as <clears throat> you might expect. And yeah. at a certain point, <laughs> James Hetfield got, says something to the effect of, man, you guys are a bunch of fucking pussies. And you could hear a pin drop. What? In that stadium (laughs) where, like, all of these blue-collar, working-class, you know, male-head dudes are like, wait, what did he just say? Did he just call us pussies? Like, motherfucker, we're sitting here getting pissed on, you know? There's a cover on the stage, like, you know, and Metallica completely lost the audience to the point where later on in the set, James, like, comes back out and he goes, hey, man, I'm uh, really sorry I <laughs> called you guys pussies. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> oh, yes. It was nuts. But any 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 impressions or memories of Guns N' Roses on that one?
2: Yeah, I remember the the, the intro or the opening of the set. I think they played it so easy and then they probably did uh, um Mr. Brownstone, or you know, but you know, it, they lost me because they, they it went so in like the jammy kind of aspect. I'm 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 a big you know guitar jam guy. I love Band of Gypsies, The Amund Brothers. I love you know Zeppelin, uh Maiden, the same. But they just kept losing me, you know. I losing interest. It was a long day. I was wet, you know. I was hungry, and you know, I walked a long way to get to this show. Um, and, and Three Rivers was a cavern of a of a venue. It was horrible sounding. You know, I was just like struggling to, to keep up with what they were trying to do, but at the same time too. Two years prior, I'd just seen uh, The Who and The Stones. And they both had these huge productions with like horn sections and extra keyboard players and background singers and, you know, stage production. It was like, sometimes you work too hard with, with, with the stadium show. It doesn't really work. You know, that's, like I had seen that
0: twice now, you know, two years prior. Like, it could become the stadium. Muzak version of the band.
2: Yeah, you're just kind of waiting for the next song to happen. And then have to go to like, you know, Bad Obsession, which I like that song, it just like a jam thing. And, you know, it just seems like to go on, you know. They're, and there are certain bands, you know, like Zeppelin or Guns, where just, you don't get that release, you know, where you're like, you know, I want to rock and roll all night, or, you know, whatever. They're like, you don't get that release. You're just kind of like, I like it, but, you know, I'm not quite sure why. It, it, <laughs> And, you know, they're great bands. I'm not cutting on those bands at all, but you know, you know what I mean. Like lyrically, I don't know. It, it was a long day. It was a long show. I'm glad I saw it. I'm glad I can say that I saw it. Um, But I don't know. They, they could have ended down the set, and it could have been you know a shorter day. And I'm, I'm, I wish it had rain that day because it, it was a long day.
0: Yeah, the rain didn't help. So, yeah. final thoughts, John.
1: Um. I do not feel guilty that I did not purchase this album. Um, (laughs) But uh, there are some songs on here that I'm glad I actually heard. Um, But no, no, nothing really, you know, nothing's, again, this would not have, I'm, this is not an album I'm going to go out and buy again.
3: So yeah, that's my final thought. Mike? My turn. Uh, I'll say that, uh, my takeaways with this
2: record are Izzy Stratton is still, uh, you know, at this point, a great songwriter. He's a key component to the band. Uh, do you really hear that? Yes, on the songs where he, he sings, you know, his lead vocals and we can hear his guitar, it works. Um, but, you know, that obviously wasn't the last. Um, but from a guitar player perspective, there is a ton of great stuff to, to learn from Splash in terms of lead guitar in this record. It's, there's an amazing amount of great lyrics in this record that I've, you know, I'll say I was influenced by I've listed their. Stolen. <laughs> but they're, they're great licks and there's, there's a lot to learn from flash guitar players. Some people don't like his tone. Some people don't like his playing. I dig it. Um, you know, it, it's a, it's a good half record. I'll say that and when we get to you know, number two, maybe we can you know, summarize the notes to come up with you know, a singular um, you know, two sided record that you know, stands as, as strong as, as a single album.
0: Agreed. I think when this album works, it works really well and makes for a really strong, maybe half or maybe a little better than half album. Um, But there are definitely songs here that feel not fully realized. And there's definitely a kind of indulgence here that is sometimes hard to, hard to take and hasn't aged well. So when it's good, it's very good. And not all of it is very good.
3: So next week we will be back and we will talk about Use Your Illusion 2, the blue one.